Welcome to Galaxy Brands, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. A little bombast mixed with some sweet syrup. Everybody buys Bitcoin at the price they deserve. Yo, I'm sounding the alarm till the starship leaves our feet first. I'm jumping into the damn well. I'm busy stacking sats. You'll never see this man sell. Batching my transacts. Yo, I handle jams well. Today we're talking stables with Austin Campbell. I'm lucid, getting cute with. Never stupid. A new kid on the block, taking shots like Cupid. The truth is, I'm a student of a revolution. Here to tell you corn is the money of the movement. Wrapping it up. I think I'm rapping enough. Either you revel in my writing or you're laughing it up. You could save it all for later or inscribe it on the chain. Either way, it's fine by me. Time for galaxy brains as always i'm alex thorne head of firmwide research at galaxy digital welcome to galaxy brains we have an excellent show for you today and a great guest austin campbell former portfolio manager for stablecoins at paxos current adjunct professor at columbia business school we're going to talk with austin about uh, stablecoins about regulation and about some big things that have happened in the news and in the world of regulation we're also going to check in with our good friend bimnet of bb from galaxy trading as always but before we begin I need to tell you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer on the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer solicitation or recommendation by Galaxy Digital to, or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Yo, Finn, you dropped a good beat on us this week. I know it's going to be a good one. So let's get right into it. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet BB from Galaxy Trading. As always, my friend, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. How are so, we doing? And we're good, man. And um, it's been a it's been a little bit of a, uh, an interesting time, mostly because yes, of the regulatory stuff that's been coming down in you know these news events uh, for traders. But before we get to that, let's talk about data this week in oh my the God. economic data that we've seen. What do we have? It was spectacular. So we started this week uh, on Tuesday with inflation data. CPI. Uh, yes, yeah. CPI. It came in at 0.5 uh, month on 0.5 percent month on month. Uh, for headline CPI, which is a super robust reading. So that's 0.5% increase month, month over on month. month. Yeah. Wow. So if you multiply that by 12, this is January that data. You, this so is January correct. over December. Correct. Wow. Um, so that's it was a significant really, really robust. Yeah. And a lot of it, um, or a good amount of it, was driven by um, housing or owner's equivalent rent, uh, which printed a, a 0.8 month on month. Still going up. Still going up. But we know that is sort of uh, a lagged indicator. And in theory, um, given some of the higher frequency data points we look at, we do expect that to, to come down over time. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, uh, with the U.S. and incredibly restrictive monetary policy, we're still having inflation uh, that's very robust. Wow. Right. You did have pockets of weaknesses in like some like medical services, like airline fares uh, and, and things of that nature. So I think the the narrative of like inflation still big picture come on the way down, like that narrative is still in place in the market. However, um, you did see um, a meaningful repricing of the interest rate curve after the CPI number. Um, so right now, um, you you have terminal rates pricing in about uh, 525 basis points, and you priced out a lot of the cuts that were baked into the market for the back half of this year and early next year. You've had basically you went from pricing in a, at the dead lows about 170 basis points of cuts or around there to like 110 now, so like 60, 70 basis points of cuts that got priced out of the market as a function of wow. how strong this, this inflation data was. In addition to that, you had retail sales this morning uh, surprised higher. We had a 3% growth month on month in, in retail sales. 
Um, and it was, a, it was a very strong report, and that just added further uh, momentum behind the sell-off you've had in fixed income. And now you're looking at bond yields that are sitting super close to the highs. Dollar wow. dollar has has rallied a lot as well. Things like dollar yen are uh, through 134. Um, Euro dollar looks like it's it's going a lot lower, breaking like 107 potentially. Um, so you've had U.S. yields move higher. That's caused uh, some, uh, a rally in the dollar as well as, as the rate differential starts to, to go in favor of, of, of the U.S. Um, and I think these are things that trends that, that can potentially continue, but it does seem like you've moved a lot very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, just to think about it, you had the insane 500,000 jobs print like two Fridays ago, right? So we know that employment's really strong. And now we know that inflation is really strong. And now we know the consumer is spending a lot as well. Yeah. Um, and so you've had a, and the Fed speak's been hawkish. So there's a lot of hawkish stuff priced into the fixed income world and the, the FX world. Um, and it's really interesting to think about in the context of like equity markets and, and like, uh, you know, crypto markets. Yeah. Because if you asked me six months ago if we had a, you know, a huge sell-off in fixed income and a huge rally in the dollar, I'd tell you stocks are probably down 5 to 10%. But really, like, stocks are barely off the highs. Like, the S&P, as of this recording, is, I would guess, 4140, mm -hmm. right? And, like, the high has been, like, 4190 or 4200. Like, in this period here. So, yeah, period, so, yeah. like, you're still sitting at the dead highs in stocks. The earnings weren't that bad. The January consumption figures that you've seen in the high frequency stuff tells you that U.S. consumer is totally fine. Uh, and so it looks like uh, you're in a period where inflation's kind of cooling a little bit. The labor market's just fine. Like, like as in, you go, basically the way to think about it is you went from soft landing in the market to no landing. It's just everything's fine. And so, uh, like, I'm still constructive on risk assets. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you look at crypto, you basically had a ton of regulations, headlines, and speculation thrown at it. And Bitcoin went from a high of 24,000 to uh, 21,000, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 21,500, 21, yeah. right? A 10% correction from and the we're highs. Practically, I mean, you can see the block clock over my shoulder. We're practically at 23,000 again. Yes. Very resilient. It's as if, like, the one of the most powerful regulators didn't just come down on crypto. You couldn't even tell right. by, by the right. price action. And we're going to talk a including, little bit more about including that. Including the alts. I mean, it, they've just it's crazy. Gone, gone on well. So, but, uh -huh. okay, let's take a step back here for a second because sure. when I hear... What I hear is that inflation, it's its its maybe meekly cooling. It's barely cooling. It's cooling. Yeah, but yeah. like it's still strong. They're yeah. not winning the fight against inflation right now. They're not. Yeah. They're they are not losing it, but they're sort of in a stalemate with it. Um, and I mean, that's the whole thing. The dual, uh, the dual um, mandate from the Fed is to maintain employment and keep inflation down. Keep price stability. Keep price stability. Okay. Yes. Which inflation is not stability of prices. Yeah. yeah, right? yeah. But yes, okay. Appreciate that. And so- um, they're not currently ke keeping uh, price stability, really. But employment looks good. Looks but the whole thing was a lot of people thought to get inflation down, you were going to have to, to yep. damage the employment market. And that isn't happening. Yeah. Yet. But so, inflation's not really cool. It doesn't appear to be accelerating. Correct. But it's not really declining much. Yes. I, I think those so are all, sort of like, all, all fair yeah, points. Yes, so we're not really like they, – they so, haven't solved it. Yeah. Well, here's here's what it looks like right now. Uh Basically, it looks like the U.S. economy can ha handle significantly high interest rates just fine. 
people used to think that it's if you took interest like a, rates to like 5% plus, yeah. that means recession, like slowdown in growth, consumptions, and all of these things. But realistically, uh, like we've been talking about this all year, because of the structural setup in the U.S., the economy is a lot more resilient than it's ever been. So we're talking about right? like what? In technological like, innovation? No, well, well, just what think about, about mortgages, for yeah. example, right? Everybody took a fixed mortgage at right. 3%. Right. So, so they can when, handle the higher rates because yeah, they're well, not even paying them. They're not even paying them. <laughs> yeah. Correct, right? It, relative to the rest of the developed world, the U.S. has much higher percentage of fixed rate, fixed rate mortgages yeah. relative to floating rate. So that's a huge structural thing you have going. Two, what did we just go through because of COVID? We literally deglobalized. We took our manufacturing from offshore and brought it onshore. What did that do? That brought a ton of new jobs over into the U.S. economy. Makes sense. While you have some inflation, you got to pay more for that for those domestically produced goods. Um, and we didn't bring everything yeah. over, but a lot, but a, lot a lot of it, a lot, a lot did. of it You're happened, right? right? And you already had a structurally tight labor market, and so you added more jobs to a tight labor market, and you know, home like asset prices like have come off, but they haven't come off that much. You also had a huge savings base that was built up from stimulus check after stimulus check, PPP loan after PPP loan and forgiveness, <laughs> student loan forgiveness, right? right. The, the the world just threw money at people for, for years. That just doesn't go away because you took interest rates up to 5% and have held them for like so the bottom line, of, though, we can sustain higher rates, but yes. can we sustain this higher inflation, you think? Because I see some of the data, you know, uh, like I, credit, credit card debt. Yes, is it's, like, it's, it's back to like, trend. Yeah, wouldn't it? Well, okay, back, but it's very high. It <laughs> the is. trend is but, but, up. But just because credit cards are high doesn't mean that they can't go higher. But is the consumer as, as safe and strong as yes, the data because, suggests? Because aren't there a lot of people in debt and stuff like that? There like, are tons won't that of people break, in debt. like, at some point, you think? At some point, sure. But not now. It will break when people start losing jobs. Yeah. Right. As long as people still have jobs, the credit cycle can because they keep making keep money. They and keep they making money and the, paying yeah. or just paying down some of it. it <laughs> paying down some of it. Yeah. Uh, but what you you're really supposed to pay attention to from like a high frequency data point or um, just like a health of the credit market standpoint is these credit card companies have to hold reserves versus like potential losses. Yep. Right. And you can look at like default rates on these these credit card loans, right? Or like how many credit cards have been delinquent. Yeah. So one of the things that people look for, um, you know, at the start of like a, a downturn is for for these default see, rates to, to, to start going up, and they really haven't. I see. So the total much. balances are high, but the but people the are delinquency it off. rates yeah. are are super low. Wow, interesting. Uh, so yeah, the U.S. economy is just fine. The U.S. consumer is just fine, and there's a lot of people that are positioned for shit not to be fine. And so there's plenty of folks that are way too defensively positioned. Assuming that we don't hit this mythic recession that all of the doom, doomers on Twitter and the the you know the perennial yes. macro doomers that have been calling for, right? And 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 right now from your standpoint it doesn't look like that's imminent. Correct. And yeah. then and then I just think about like like for asset prices to go down, you need people to sell them. Right? Like fundamentally, how right. do, how does stuff go down in value? It goes down in value because people sell it. Yeah. Right. In stocks, what's happening? You have corporate buybacks, right? Cor U.S. corporates are still on the bid. Like these big tech companies still have huge share repurchases. The energy companies are doing really great. How they're not giving out dividends; they're buying back their shares. Right. Right. Then you have like the U.S. retail community, right? U.S. retail. If everyone has a job and you're at historically <laughs> low unemployment. They right? got like, money to spend. They got money to spend. And like point being, 
like I don't think U.S. retail is really selling stocks, and everyone I know is still contributing to their four hundred one k's, etc. Right. And so there's just still tons of like buy pressure on stocks, and then all the shorts in the hedge fund world in the tactical world they got wiped out after the in January, the, in and, January yeah. and everybody got squeezed, and that's why you saw all the garbage names in the S and P, yeah, like rip higher, right? So. The shorter, like, there's not enough incentive to short because, like, these short squeezes can be pretty dramatic. Sorry, I'm a little under the weather. (laughs) Uh, And so, like, the question is then, like, who's there to, like, sell stocks? And there isn't, like, crazy IPO supply coming down the the pipeline either. So you're left of the market that has marginal buy pressure from, you know, corporates that are on the bid for for, for share repurchases, et cetera. You know, constant 401k buying, although that's not really that much. And I don't, and like retail's not really a seller of of stocks either. They're probably relatively underweight as well. So I just see risk drifting higher. And in my head, like there's no reason why the S&P can't trade at like a 21 multiple instead of like a 19 multiple. What does that mean? At $225 of EPS, it means the S&P could be at 4,500 before you fucking know it. Yeah. Uh, I think there's that risk. I also just, you know, I, given the, the slew of earnings we just had like stuff's fine so like where if you were to go down like where are you going down to like 4k 3900 just doesn't seem that attractive and so in my head the only way like we get a material sell-off in like stock equities is if you just have a huge rotation from equities into bonds which can happen if bond yields go a lot higher like it's possible right um, and if they stay high for an insanely long period of time, you know, those risks grow as well. So, you know, I think right here, right now, I think it's copacetic. It's, it's construct- things are fine. Things yeah, are fine. And America looks strong, looks strong. And, you know, crypto doesn't seem to care about the regulatory These attacks onslaught. that have been happening. Right. Yeah. We're, we're, we'll get into those with our guest today. Um, great conversation as always, my friend, Bimnet, a BB from galaxy trading. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Let's go to Austin Campbell, our guest, an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, former portfolio manager at Paxos, where you managed Paxos's stablecoins. Welcome, Austin. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Very excited to have you here um, in general, and because uh, we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Austin has uh, been in markets a long time, um, and he'll give some of his background in a moment, but also, particularly this week, given all that's been happening in the regulatory world some of which specifically involving Paxo. So I thought it would be great to get your perspective on these things and share it with our audience. Yeah, I would say it's strange. I uh, I left Paxos in December and somehow have ended up busier than I've ever been <laughs> as a result of all of these things. So, so tell, tell for our audience who doesn't know you, tell, tell us a little bit of your background and then we'll get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, I jokingly say to people, I'm the grouchy fixed income guy in the crypto world, which is to say, you know, I started back in the day in reinsurance, which that is its own thing. And then I was at JP Morgan for about a decade there, uh, immediately after the crisis, and then onwards to 2018. I've worked with all sorts of insurance-linked and cash stability derivatives. So we dealt with things like stable value from the 401k world, bank owned life insurance, money market reform, things of that sort. So, you know, the running gag I've had is I worked with stable coins before they were on a blockchain, you know, because honestly, the economics of these instruments are almost all identical. 
uh, in many ways. And then I found my way to uh, Stoneridge, which is Nydig's parent, which is really when I started getting deep into crypto as mm -hmm. opposed to like academically knowing it existed. Right. Uh, I was at City as part of the digital assets team and rates trading. I co-headed that with uh, my friend Lee. And then I was at Paxos for about a year as the head of portfolio management running the stablecoin reserves. So let's get right into the news of the week uh, or the, the, the period, the market period. Um, Paxos, they have two stablecoins, right? USDP, which is their generic Paxos stablecoin, and then they have BUSD, uh, which is some kind of partnership. Maybe you can clarify how, how the, what the relationship between Binance and Paxos is. Yeah, so Paxos would phrase it as saying that is a white-labeled stablecoin. So what happens is when you're under uh, the NYDFS jurisdiction, they have, and you can find this on their website, a bunch of rules about how a stablecoin needs to run. And the summary of those things are it needs to be bankruptcy remote, held in trust for the benefit of the coin holders. So the reserves are not Paxos's property. They're not Binance's property. They're the property of the people who put the money in, similar to something like a money market fund, right? Great. Two, you need to have a very conservative set of financial instruments behind it, which is to say you're not going to go out and take YOLOs on Bitcoin or stocks. Right. You're going to be holding T-bills. Yep. On top of that, there are a bunch of restrictions around like you have to offer one-to-one -one, like mint and burn capabilities to people, no charging markups or markdowns, no massive delays on redemption. Things of that sort, very consumer protection focused, yep. which I obviously support. And then there are a lot of rules in the background about like KYC, AML, onboarding, operational controls, financial controls, Auditing. all the belt and suspenders yeah. you would expect from actual bank regulation. And so USDP was created in 2018 under that. The only real difference for BUSD, which was created in 2019, is that Binance is a marketing and distribution partner. So to be very clear, the NYDFS version is issued only on the Ethereum chain, and everything from mint burn issuance management is handled by Paxos. Binance has their name on it. They help distribute the thing primarily through the Binance exchange itself and are very much sort of call it a marketing slash entry point. They are not the ones actually managing the reserves or the mint burn. Got it. Uh, makes a lot of sense. I think just for our audience, BUSD, when I last checked, was about $15.4 in circulation, um, USDP around like $850 million. Um, And BUSD, the third largest uh, centrally issued fiat-backed stablecoin behind uh, Circle's USDC and Tether's USDT. So um, an important part of the global market for stablecoins. Um, so w the news was, so again, Paxos, you mentioned the NYDFS, that's the New York Department of Financial Services, widely known and regarded as one of the strictest and most careful and prudent financial regulators really in the world, definitely at the U.S. state level. Um, and they they oversee many, many financial companies, but in crypto, some that I'll just name that are well known to be managed uh, or regulated and overseen by NYDFS, Fidelity Digital Assets, right, Coinbase, BitGo. Gemini, um, and a bunch of and Paxos and, and a bunch of others, and um, so very strict and thoughtful regulator in many ways. They also introduced the Bit license, which was their big crypto only license. But most of these companies, I believe, and correct me here, and I think it's true for Paxos, they actually opt to be a New York State chartered trust under the DFS. That is correct. Paxos has a legal entity that was called PTC, which is Paxos Trust Company, which is an NYDFS regulated New York limited purpose trust. There company. you go. So, so on uh, Friday of last week, so a week ago, this comes out on this Friday, but last Friday, um, it was reported in the media that NYDFS was investigating Paxos, um, which I thought was a funny headline because it's like this is a very stringent regulator. Like, 
they're constantly investigating and working with their, their overseen uh, companies. But the market assumed that this was Binance related because, again, because of Paxos's track record, the people who work there and its reg oversight by an extremely vigorous regulatory process, very even in the market, and you can talk about this, I'm sure, too, from your experience, but very low likelihood that Paxos intentionally did anything wrong at all. Yeah, right? I, would, I would agree with that. Yeah, statement. so so the, and I think the market did too. So immediately after that headline, everyone is saying this has to be related to BUSD, specifically to Binance, not even BUSD, but there's a maybe a touch point there that they're looking into. Um, and then uh, over the weekend, actually during the Super Bowl, the Wall Street Journal ran a story saying that they had received a Wells notice, and it was about issuing unregistered securities. And that was frightening because we're concerned then that is the SEC arguing that all stablecoins are unregistered securities? But then on Monday of this week, um, Paxos issued a statement saying, acknowledging they'd received the Wells notice, but saying that that specific inquiry um, was solely, and I think they said unequivocally, only about BUSD, which I think brought a lot of comfort to the market. The idea, and I'm sharing this, and I've shared this a lot this week with people, was that had USDP also been on, if it was sort of a broad side inquiry on centrally issued stablecoins, then perhaps all of them would be at risk. Not saying they're not all at risk, but it appears that as of now, the investigation uh, at Paxos by the SEC, which by the way, Paxos has said they would vigorously defend, they disagree with, they would even uh, litigate uh, if necessary. So love to hear your reaction to some of this. I know I just gave the whole timeline a lot of stuff here, but um, you know, you used to manage these instruments. So I'll start by saying uh, you always have to be careful with the both federal securities regulators and banking regulators and that just because they have taken some actions does not mean they won't take future actions. Like getting a Wells notice on BUSD does not mean you can't get one on other things in the future right. or that others won't get them. Something to understand, right, in particular about the CFTC and then to a lesser extent the SEC, these are not gigantic agencies. They have limited bandwidth. So they have to pick their battles and roll them out over time. So I think – you know, it's nice that it's just BUSD, and I believe Paxos when they said that. I don't have any personal information. I'm not there anymore, but I, I they're not going to lie about that. Um, but on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily mean more isn't coming because what would be interesting is understanding what the SEC's justification right. for it being a security is. Because if you want to say, well, it's backed by securities, therefore it's a security, then obviously the other stable coins are implicated. And more so, many non-sort of crypto instruments are probably implicated in that as well in ways that are a bit nonlinear. Um, if they want to say, no, 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 this is specifically around BUSD because on Binance's platform, you could earn interest on your BUSD balances. Even if Binance was paying that as marketing money, they could make some sort of argument about, oh, this is just a pass-through of interest. It really looks more like an unregistered fund. And I'm not saying I believe that argument, but I'm saying on the face, you wouldn't get laughed out of court making it at the starting line, and then it's facts right. and circumstances dependent. That would be a little bit alarming. That probably wouldn't apply to USDP, but you earn an APY on your USDC on Coinbase, so that might still implicate Circle, right? And so – it really does depend upon the legal particulars of that sort right. of thing as to what's a security. And I would recommend for people who want to get exceptionally nerdy, Lewis Cohen wrote a very good paper on this. I would recommend you just go and read all hundred something pages of that <laughs> if you want to learn. Or, you know, on the off chance, you just need to go to sleep. Sorry, <laughs> sorry Lewis. Depending on <laughs> yeah, what you're, how, how nerdy you are. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating question because, you know, I think one of the – they'll throw this out here. The, the affiliated platform giving interest – not even affiliated. The, in this case – it's a loose affiliation, but 
um, the downstream platform paying some kind of interest and not the stablecoin itself. I could see them making an argument like that. I, I agree. I don't think it ultimately holds up because, again, to be clear, anyone could take any stablecoin and put it on any platform and do anything with it, right? It's not the stable. It's not the instrument, right? It's actually like kind of arbitrary that Binance is even. They've got a B in front of the USD. Like that's pretty much it. Like anyone else, people are talking about how they wrapped Binance. BUSD gets wrapped and put on other chains, right? Yes. Like now we know Binance does that, but. Anyone could do that. Well, I would suggest more so Binance was doing that in response to other people doing that. So back in the early day when the Binance smart chain had just started, there was not really like the canonical version of BUSD. And so you have all these private bridges that start sending BUSD to that chain. That's true of other chains too, like Phantom, Avalanche, you name it. People bridge things everywhere. The nature of bridges in crypto is right. here's how one works. And you're open and permissionless, so anyone right. can build it. Yeah. I, I have a token on one end. I lock it in a smart contract, and I create a copy of that token on the other end. That's it. This is not complicated technology, okay? And so anyone can do it. And I think Binance, you know, being fair to them, probably realistically, uh, made the risk decision that, hey, if this is going to happen, we would prefer to have something a little bit more central and secure to do this rather than just tons of randos. Total to free have 30, for all. Yeah, 30 versions right, of a like coin. BUSD, and, right, BUSD, it, it, BUSD, exactly. right? And this has happened on chains where you have like eight versions of USDC or something, right? Yeah. So it, it could get wild. Um, so I think they were doing it that way. And I will say... That drew a huge amount of scrutiny from the NYDFS. I don't think it's news to anybody that that did. Um, people have talked about that publicly now, so I think I can say it. But the concern was always that Paxos is the issuer of BUSD on the Ethereum chain. If you want to come to the Paxos platform and hand me the token and get a dollar back, it better be. ETH. It has to be the ETH one, right? Yeah. Like we're not taking anything from any other chain. So. It was called Binance Peg BUSD, Wrapped BUSD, and I think there were concerns about the consumer representations there. But the flip side of the coin is exactly what I said, like rolling that back and saying, no, 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 only on ETH also opens you up to just tons of unaffiliated bridging instead. And if you want to lay like core blame somewhere, it's that I think the U.S. regulatory apparatus in general is not particularly agile about keeping up with the technological development. Like the fact that the token was issued in 2019 and in 2023, the only approved version is still on Ethereum, would be a little bit like in like regular computer terms, you still having to use Windows 95 as your operating system today. Like you're just oh, several versions They're not going to like that. They're not going to like that. <laughs> Look, they can be angry with me all they want. I The only kind of you max. Austin's calling Ethereum Windows 95 people. Get on him. Right. The, <laughs> I, as I tell joking. people, the only kind of maxi I am is an anti-maxi maxi. I like so this. like I'm very open-minded about yeah. ETH could be the winner or other but things I, could I be the winner, but you have to go where the demand is. I agree. And I, and I, and I, I, you know, I think another truth about American regulation that dovetails with what you said about them not being super nimble um, is they, you know, and this is advice I would give to every regulator. You've got to at least start with what the reality is, right? And the reality is that uh, this thing was getting copied in a lot of places, by the way, a lot of things are copied in a lot of places on on these blockchains, not just stablecoins. So um, you've got to think about policies that will account for that or at least be aware of that as you're drafting policies and, and rules. Um, do you think that like the stablecoins in general, uh, how essential are they to crypto or how how value add are they to the world? I mean, in your mind, is, is this a game changing innovation or is this a bridge to some further future where we have, say, like native dollars on chain in some way. Like, how do you think about that? 
Well, I think bridge is the right way to say it, right? Like if you think about changes in financial systems over time, it kind of comes in two varieties, right? Variety one is very sudden, but often extremely destructive, like collapse of nations, massive calamities, hyperinflation, where you have a transition that goes from thing A to thing B, but often in a fashion that causes huge amounts of collateral damage on the trip and or as a result of huge amounts of collateral damage in the case of, say, war or like a plague. Right. Okay. The other one, though, is things drift gradually over time. And to do that, your systems need to be able to talk to each other. So for me, in many ways, I think of a stablecoin as the bridge between the traditional financial system and being on chain. Because if we're talking about what people perceive as money, apologies to all the Bitcoin maxis out there, but it's still largely fiat currency. And so if I want to buy a sandwich, if I want to go buy a soda, if I want to buy a car, I'm for the most part not paying with that with Bitcoin any more than I'm paying for it with like a gold bar. I'm going to pay for it in the United States with dollars in the UK with pounds and, you know, the eurozone with euros, like whatever is appropriate. But you're paying with the local currency. And so getting the dollar odd to blockchains, especially globally distributed, public, widely used blockchains, is a way of making the dollar the standard currency for exchange in those areas. And I think it is exceptionally important to have the dollar in particular on there for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that if you think about all of the potential financial systems with the scale to be used on a blockchain that actually are decent for the end user, like the dollar probably wins. It may be winning by default compared to the others, but winning by default is still winning. Mm -hmm. You know, mostly there is still demand for dollars and things like, say, the Swiss franc are probably just too small. Yeah. Right. And so one is I would say it's kind of a human good to be able to allow people in countries where maybe their central banks and local governments have not been good behaviors to access dollars on a blockchain. Two, it allows the U.S. to find another captive pool for funding its debt, right? Like at, this may not be news to people, but we have a somewhat large deficit <laughs> in the United States. And one of the things that helps you control that is having sources of demand that will actually contribute to helping the government fund itself. You know, this is part of the cost of being the reserve currency in some ways. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is in terms of the structures we could potentially build in the United States, I still believe, despite the current regulatory push, which I think is in many ways very wrongheaded, that we could have the best in class in terms of investor protection, controls, and like safety and security for people using these products on a blockchain. So, Yeah, I think it's an incredibly uh, powerful uh, thing. And you're right. I think geopolitically it absolutely extends the reach of the dollar and extends it in ways that the traditional system cannot um, and makes it a native internet uh, accessible currency. I would take that one step further and say it is actually just extending the traditional system, which is to say, like I wrote an op-ed recently in uh, Coindesk about this, but we have, if you think of a stable coin just as something on a public or private ledger where I'm gonna take a dollar from you, put it into something, and we'll come back to that something, and when you want it back, I'm going to give you a dollar. We have like tens of trillions of dollars of stable coins already in the world. Because what is that? It's a bank deposit. It's a money market fund. It's a stable value fund. It's lots of kinds of insurance products. Like these are things we understand, things that in fact were greatly reformed post-2008 to work better. And to argue that somehow just changing the ledger you put it on is somehow this magical transformation that changes everything is a little bit like saying going from paper tickets to electronic tickets changes IBM stock in some like fundamental way. Yep. That's just not true. It's still equity in IBM. Right. Very interesting. Um, do you think uh, 
I want to step back. We're going to talk. You mentioned the the wrong headed, uh, in your view, regulatory push that's happening. We're going to talk about that in one second. I want to ask you about Tether. Okay. A lot of people ask a lot of things about Tether. Um, it's I, I would call it the world's most resilient stablecoin. Um, they and, and by the way, it's the largest as well. Um, but they, these guys have weathered. I mean, years of of difficulty. In some cases, significant difficulty when they're. Uh, you know, a big portion of the reserves was lost by this company, the Crypto Capital Corp or whatever. Um, and they were famously, uh, you know, under collateralized at, at, at one point because of that. They've had investigations. They've had whatever. There's been endless drumbeat of are the reserves there? If they're there, are they of high enough quality? Right. Et cetera, et cetera. Um, going all the way back to like 2017 when there were white papers, a, a, a famous, I should say infamous paper, Cole uh, Mora et al., um, and uh, which which alleged that Tether was printing money out of thin air to buoy the crypto markets, that the Bitcoin run in 2017 was because of printing money out of thin air. Nobody ever followed up to point out like why crypto then went down like 80% after that, <laughs> right? Um, but what are your thoughts on Tether? I mean, it's, an, it's offshore. Um, it's very important in crypto markets. Um, you know, obviously, I think run in a very different way in terms of the level of transparency than certainly Paxos, uh, which was, the I think, the leader and the first to publish QSIPs for underlying collateral and a bunch of other very high-quality transparency reports. I'd love your take on Tether. Yeah, so my honest take on Tether is the fact that Tether is the largest stablecoin right now basically reveals that one of the single biggest mistakes you could have made in the past, call it four-ish years in crypto, is to be a regulated onshore company in the United States. And that's back to why I said I think some of the regulation is wrongheaded. Like Tether has explicitly taken the view, which I think has become both more refined and more professionally executed over time, that they explicitly don't want to deal directly with the United States, right? It's some combination of not trusting the regulators, wanting to face other kinds of clients, not wanting certain obligations. So they are not as transparent as others. By design. Um, by design, right? Yeah. Like I think they would cop to that if you could get them you know, to talk about it. And I think- some of that is a reaction to the U.S. regulatory apparatus. Some of that is belief about privacy. Some of that is just their standards of operating. I will say my personal belief, you know, at least based on what I know, is like all the money is there, maybe better managed than some people think. But the problem you have with lack of transparency is how do you know, mm -hmm. right? And so to me, that's one of the core problems that is created in this market is when you incentivize people to do what Tether is doing, you get what you would expect, which is something less transparent, less accessible, and potentially over time less robust. But again, hard to know. Yeah, hard to know. It is like, excuse me, it is when I think of Tether, um, just it's it, it does. I think of it as a pitfall of the U.S. And it's interesting. You talk about tr when, and what I mean is the lack of true robust like clarity and, and rules for stables. Um, when you think about fiat backed centrally issued stable coins, um, for the most part, the way I think about this is that the technology is is trivial, right? At this point, it's been commoditized, right? I mean, you, Paxos literally commoditized it by creating white-labeled versions of it, right? You can just push the button and repeat. The same guy, Austin, can manage both because they're basically identical. Um, but what you're really competing on is 
is trust and transparency, right? Like how, and quality of the reserves, but also how clearly available are they? Compete a little bit on operational stuff around creating and redeeming and like how easy and fast it is, sure. But, um, and that that is very interesting. It also says to me the fact that Tether is still so big. It, it is it, another way of looking at it. Is, it's a, a sign of the lack of maturity of the crypto markets. But much of that is regulatory and not, I mean, companies like Galaxy and Paxos have been working very hard to be mature. Right. I think um, the problem we face in the United States is that if you want to do something the right way, right, which is to say be fully transparent, bankruptcy remote, very conservative reserves, constantly available for your customers. And let's come back to that operational point, because I yeah. think that's more interesting and probably one of the greatest points of difficulty here. But if you're trying to do that thing in the right way and you're onshore in the United States, you just consistently get punished for it, right? Like you have to follow rules that are beyond the scope of the things I just described that are much harsher than what anybody faces. You get constant regulatory inquiries. The SEC shows up and calls you a security for no reason, right? And so you end up in this situation where every incentive to do the right thing for your business is in conflict with putting yourself in what should be the best regulated financial system, but is actually behaving as though you're an adversary, even though in the future of the United States, I think if you fumble the blockchain thing and dollar stable coins don't exist, the reality is that's one of the paths to the US not having the reserve currency anymore because CBDCs are like a product without market demand. Like everywhere they've really been launched, either people don't care or the government has to very abusively coerce them to use them, right? Because a CBDC is like cash, but actually we're just going to track you all like the time worse. in the way it's yeah. – Yeah, it's mostly surveillance designed. Exactly. exactly. Um, and maybe there are ways you could do it without doing that, but then that causes a lot of like agitation among the regulators because then you are going to lose control of a lot of things. Like I just want to say the privacy – versus utility, distribution, rules, debate around CBDCs is extremely complicated. And if I had one word of advice for everybody on that, it would just be slow down. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting. Let's talk about the operational thing because what is it like to manage a – you've got you've – got like you said, it's a bridge between traditional finance and this global decentralized permissionless blockchain world, public blockchains. What, what is it like to manage a, a product where your instrument floats and moves and – even trades 24-7, but the underlying collateral is bounded by, you know, the traditional world and, and other stuff. Yeah, so I would say this is actually probably the hardest and most complicated part of stablecoins. And by the way, probably generalizes to some of the place that the financial system is going. Because if something like FedNow boots up, you're going to have this same problem. And so what's going on is really on one side, like you said, I have a 24-7 live system. And on the other side, I've got a system that is open probably 25% of the time by hours, less when there's holidays. And so you're taking something exceptionally antiquated. So like call it a school bus, like with a <laughs> rocket on top of it and trying to manage that thing at some average Hard rate of speed. Hard to fly that thing, yeah. Right, yeah. And so what you find is you're constantly optimizing for overnight and weekend liquidity. Because if somebody during normal business hours in Asia wants to mint a normal amount of stable coins for them, that means that I here in the United States at 3 a.m. get hit with a half a billion dollar mint or burn transaction, 
right? And you can't send those by Fedwire. It's closed. Um, <laughs> so you end up using some of these banks that have 24-7 internal blockchains, like mint burn functionality. So that's why Silvergate and Signature, for instance, were very big in this space. Right. There's nothing special about them except that they're running a 24-7 internal ledger. So, you know, I can actually face a client in Asia at 3 a.m. New York time. Right. That's how you do 24-7 mint burn. And then what happens is you're optimizing for how much am I leaving in uninsured deposits at these banks, right? And Paxos, for instance, started buying private insurance on them, but that's less sound than leaving it in like a T-bill, which is where I'd really want it. But you're matching up these systems. And so you can run out of liquidity at the wrong time. That happened once or twice when I was at Paxos. And like CZ at one point uh, sent out a tweet about like USDC redemptions being halted. That was purely a liquidity issue. Like we just ran out of money to mint new stuff at like 3 a.m., <laughs> right? Which is not yeah, controllable like come, come until the next business morning. day. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Because the problem is I have all the money. I just can't get to it because like regular banks are not open. Right. And so you end up managing your liquidity. It's always an estimate. What do I think about stress? What do I think about market conditions? But you're balancing many variables. There's not an obvious right answer much of the time. And you just do the best you can. And so you end up in a situation where you have breaks and sometimes can even lose the peg for small amounts for short periods of time purely due to timing. It's literally the antiquated system. You're trying to, you know, get a horse to like ride on a skateboard or something like that or like get a right. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the banking situation in the U.S. because I know that, first of all, we mentioned Silvergate and Signature. Um, and and we uh, which the Sen and the Signet were these two systems that they have and. Um, it's been a lot of talk lately. We've covered it plenty in our in our um, research and, and publications. The I guess I would I would peg it as starting with January third, the joint statement from the Fed, the OCC, and the FDIC. Which um, I I would say, although contrary to what they literally wrote, they claim that it doesn't discourage or prohibit any legal banking activity. Um, but then they proceed to loudly discourage banks from interacting with public blockchains. Basically, I think they said specifically to principally hold or issue. Uh, digital assets on a public that that are carried on a public blockchain, um, and it's escalated since then. The Fed came out with more guidance. They said that um, their their authority uh, extends to non FDIC insured state chartered banks. Well, that's Custodia was a non FDIC designed to not need insurance because uh, essentially a narrow bank, and they had and then they denied Custodia's applications for membership at the Fed in a master account. Um, there have been a whole bunch of these banking things. Nick Carter, who's been a guest on our show many times, wrote a great piece. Um, encourage everyone to check out, uh, sort of documenting. Nick told me in his prior life he must have been an archivist. That's how he thinks of this because I'm like, you're always, he just feels the need to document it out. Um, but it's powerful and it, and it appears threatening, um, particularly on the bank side. Um, what are your thoughts here? And by the way, stable coins to me are – uh, a refuge here, right? I mean, if we still can, even if banks have problems, by the way, you just talk about the operational of you needing the banks in order to operate the stablecoin, um, at least there can still be dollars in the crypto ecosystem. But what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so I want to start with uh, two points of clarification. One, 
what the Fed said specifically is that their authority governs Fed member banks. So in the case where you were a I see. uninsured, non-Fed member bank, state depository institution, I don't think they're telling you that they're in I charge see. of you. I see. But that also puts you in like this tiny backwater where it's hard to interact with everybody else. That's kind of the Fed, you know, disclaiming from a U.S. like, hey, we're not in charge of Guam, but yeah, we get like the rest of the fencing. United States. Yeah. Yes. And ring fencing is a word that they've used. Um, the second point is that much of that policy statement that you talked about was actually put in the Federal Register, which makes it official federal policy. Right. Like Nick documented that in his yeah. article, which full transparency for the listeners, I helped Nick a little bit with. I think he did an excellent job there. Yeah. Um, so I would say there's a couple of things happening. One is that the banking regulators have pretty much clearly said banks cannot interact with crypto native assets, like no trading Bitcoin, no trading ETH, like be gone. Two, they've said that while stablecoins are theoretically possible in the current environment, they see no way for them to be issued on public chains, which is to say that is an endorsement of you could theoretically use the technology, but only if it looks like an internal bank ledger in a way that we're used to and works exactly like a bank, yeah. which is a little bit like saying you can have a car, but you can't drive it faster than 10 miles per hour. <laughs> yeah. So just use a horse, yeah. right? And so, you know, that essentially says like the limit of their technological innovation that they're willing to even think about tolerating is like Signet. Um, the last part is that- Which doesn't touch crypto. Correct. It's just cash. It's it's just an internal blockchain using cash, yeah. right? Um, it, one might question if you're going to do it that way, why you even need a blockchain instead of just a private well, ledger. One might. One yeah. might question. Um, <laughs> and then- at the end of it, they're very grouchy about custody as well, which is particularly ironic as the SEC is trying to force people to use bank-regulated custodians at the same time the banking regulators are saying, you're not allowed to be a custodian. Uh, we're in the situation with what banking regulators are doing that I would say even regular way crypto firms are now just losing their bank accounts. I've heard this, um, that particularly startups, uh, some losing, many more are finding it impossible to gain an account. Oh, opening a new one right now, honestly, just go home, save yourself the time. Um, <laughs> and in terms of like operating accounts, so I'm not talking about things for like you know, native crypto trading. I'm saying even operating accounts to just like make payroll type things, some people are losing. And I think one of the things that you need to understand about a bank regulator is they have wide and sweeping powers over a gigantic and expansive set of rules that it is impossible to be 100% perfectly compliant with at all times. Like I spent a long time at JP Morgan. I will openly state, I think that's probably the best managed bank in the world. And JP Morgan still had plenty of regulatory problems because we're not perfect. Right, Because perfection is the standard to have no faults. And so if they want to come and find a problem, they can. And so one of the tactics they could use when they don't like a particular activity is not to tell you no, but just to make your life hell for doing it with constant inquiries and things like, oh, well, you know, this trace ticket that you were supposed to file within X minutes, it was X minutes in one second, right? Like things like that, even if they're just very tiny foot faults and just sort of create this endless problem for doing the business. I think that's a little bit of what you're seeing in crypto, and I think that's a reaction to the regulators largely having missed things like Celsius, like Terra, like FTX, and now they're coming and fighting all of the people who, like, I'm not personally aware of Paxos ever mishandling or misplacing consumer money. I don't think anybody's, like, lost money in a material way because of Paxos, but now they're the problem because that's what they can get their hands on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough situation. Um, I think there's a lot of ways that this thing could to, could play. Um, but you do see a concerted effort, right? It's not just uh, 
you know, one regulator here and that's that. Like, I mean, I, I was thinking about January 27th when Custodia's applications were denied uh, at the Fed. Um, the White House released a, cons- uh, a, a paper or a, a blog, I don't know what we call it, I think mitigating the risks of crypto assets, which also um, encouraged people not to mess with them, right? Um, a lot of this stuff happening to say East Fed, OCC, FDIC all together in that joint statement, the national banking regulators, right? You see, it seems like a concerted push. You think it is partly a reaction? Um, yes, is which is what you said. Is that, is it, or has it been in the works for some time, or do you think a little bit of both? Some of both, right? Like, so I want to be a little bit sympathetic to regulators. I know I've said some negative things about them, but <laughs> let, let's go the other way and put yourselves in the shoes of a regulator, right? It is a thankless job. In some ways, you're like the janitor or the plumber of the financial system, which is to say when things are going well, nobody thinks about you. And when the stuff gets everywhere, you're the problem, right? And so they are going to get blamed for anything that goes wrong with no upside. That creates a natural conservatism for regulators in terms of how they act. The other part is just being fully transparent. A lot of crypto companies have been extremely substandard about like controls, disclosures, investor protections, handling of funds. Absolutely. Like it's I mean, FTX is the poster child, but there are others as well. It, right. Like I named some of the others, but it, yeah. it's been kind of a clown show. And like as an institutional fixed income person looking at the industry, half of the time I'm just slapping my head and being like, we really need some adults in the room. So I get why they're so negative on the space. I think what I'm worried about though with this concerted push. And I think it's coming from all of them looking at this and just being like half the people we interact with in this space are scammers. Therefore, all of them are scammers. Therefore, we will ban the technology is really the mistake, right? right? You know, take another example, right? Like if I own an automobile and I'm foolish enough to pound like eight beers and go drive extremely drunk and I hit somebody and kill them, that's not an argument against transit. That's an argument against my personal behavior. And what I worry about in the United States is that as the rest of the world is moving forward, we're kind of going backwards on the technology part. And that yeah. really should be separate from the conduct. The rest of the world really is moving forward. Um, the UK, just her, his majesty's treasury, excuse me, um, just put out comprehensive guidelines and framework that I think still needs to be actually adopted by the FCA there. But like it is detailed. Yes. And they said, let's put crypto right into the existing framework. And by the way, we'll do the underlying work on custody, lending, borrowing, trading, right? So it's actually a similar view as to what the SEC chairman has been saying, which is that it can fit inside the existing framework. But we don't have, you know, possession and control figured out for crypto assets. We don't have Reg ATS figured out for crypto, right? Whereas uh, the UK is has really done that work. You go to Europe, you look at MICA, the Markets mm-hmm. and Crypto Assets Regulation, ex- a bespoke regime, so not bring it into the existing one, but again, extremely detailed and progressive. You see the same thing in the Middle East and, and in parts of Asia. Yeah, um, Dubai, Dubai's recent legislation, I think, is a step in the right direction as well. Yeah, and, 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 and when you think about the intersection here with stables, we've talked about how it's a way to extend the reach of the dollar, the power of America. Um, it does. It looks like we're fumbling the ball here a little bit. Well, it's a little bit ironic that, right, like I do a little bit of consulting and advisory work. And one of the things I would tell somebody right now about a U.S. dollar stablecoin is whatever you do, don't do it in the United States. I hate to hear that. hate to hear that. Um, Austin, this has been a great conversation, man. I really appreciate you joining us. And um, we'll have you back again soon. Austin Campbell uh, from Columbia Business School. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. 
That's all we have for Galaxy Brains this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we always appreciate your comments and feedback. Hit us up on Twitter at GLXY Research or email us research at galaxy.com. We love to hear from our listeners. Um, that's it. Have a great and safe weekend, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.